Welcome back, Cal and listeners. This is Methodical Millions, episode 30. Thanks for tuning in. Cal, we covered a lot about options trading and contracts, and I wanted to know what moves the actual underlying stock? What moves markets? How do you know if a stock's going to go up or down or do well in the long term? What causes the actual stock price to move? The basics of the movement of a stock price is really supply and demand. So for every stock, you have a fixed number of shares that are available to trade. It's called a float or outstanding number of shares. And at any given time, you'd have people who want to sell those shares and people who want to buy those shares. And whenever there is an imbalance from one side to the other, so let's say there are more and more buyers, usually because there are more buyers than sellers, those buyers have to compete in a way with each other. So they increase their bid price to buy those shares that are available to sell. So those would eventually help push the price higher and higher. Conversely, if you're looking at the other side, when you have more sellers than buyers, the opposite works as well. So the sellers would have to reduce the price more and more because there are less bidders and that would push the price down. So to put it shortly, that's what it is. That's really what moves the markets. But there are other reasons that cause that shift in price. The main reasons could be some recent news, some sort of catalyst, could be an earnings report, could be a major announcement, could be good or bad, and the market can react according to that news or update or expectation. That's awesome. Is there a theory on how long someone should invest? I've got my own biases and opinions, I know, on that, but... I suppose why I'm asking is if the stock market is always moving, the age old debate is, especially in things like crashes or booming markets, do you sell? Do you buy? Do you hold? And I think there's actually financial analysts who will give you recommendations. So a good example is if you go on your broker of choice, you will see a buy, hold, or sell rating. And although I don't put a lot of weight into an analyst's rating. I'd like to come up with my own investing thesis. It depends on your long-term strategy. What's your opinion on short-term versus long-term trading versus investing? And how do you kind of make a whole theory around market price movement and all that? I could be completely wrong about this, but I truly believe it's a subjective point of view. The information that they provide to you with regards to what the analysts have to say regarding that particular underlying could be useful, if you like. I personally do not think of it too much. Reason being, they have analysts who would say this is a sell, and then some would say this is a hold, some would say this is an outperformer, and some would say this is a buy, and they all differ in opinion because there's not really a right or wrong answer. So if you're biased one way or the other, you'd listen to what you want to hear. That's my personal opinion. So I don't put a lot of weight, as you said, with regards to what analysts have to say. Uh, having said that, it really comes down to what your target is. Are you looking to save some money and just put aside and let it grow slowly? Are you looking to retire 
in 20, 25 years and maybe live off of the returns of your investments? Or are you looking to be a bit more aggressive and take a bit more risk and maybe be a bit more active in the markets and try to grow the capital that you have and hoping that get to a certain amount and put it towards maybe other stocks or other investments, whether it was real estate or a business or whatever it might be. So it comes down to your thesis, but I do believe going back to what moves the markets is regardless of what your target is, you have to have a certain expectation with how much that move can be. I once read an analogy online and it was quite funny. One person said that he lost a lot of money after holding a certain share that ended up dropping and he held through all the way while it was rising and then it dropped and they lost most of their profits. And someone commented, it's like leaving your food on the cooker and just forgetting it forever, right? So you eventually have to take the food off the cooker. You have to take it off the stove or the oven because you have to collect your rewards. You have to know the right time of when the food is ready and I need to take it off now. So it depends on what you're actually cooking. You know, sometimes it'll take long. And sometimes it has to be 15, 20 minutes. But that analogy, even though it gave me a bit of a chuckle, it actually really resonated. And I thought, you know, that's a good way to think of things. I love that, actually. And if that's true, I've been boiling pasta for seven years. <laughs> yeah. But um, I like that a lot. I get excited about having my own thesis. And it gets me more engaged with following a certain company or feeling I have a small part in watching someone grow. And I've said it before, listen to the people running the ship, go listen to earnings calls, go listen to the actual people driving the bus. As you hear in every earnings call, they're forward-looking statements. Business is not perfect. No one will predict the actual outcome. And I guess my recommendation would be find the visionaries, find the people who actually want to change the world. So couple of assumptions. Are they going to make lives a lot better in a meaningful way that really overturns the status quo? So whether it's bringing the cost of something down, usage goes up. So I bet you if you measured how many people take an Uber, there's probably a subset of people who might be 20 and under who have never taken a cab in their life and similarly might never get a car. So look at that displacement of behavior where people would have access to a black town car or a cab. And it was always, oh, cabs are too expensive. It's 20 bucks. But a utility for knowing you can get something so instant and then you only pay $13 or it's pay per use feature. And the experience is just so amazing where it works. It's transparent. I'm really fascinated by that whole concept that you can make an app, overlay a service, merge those two together and go to market and then all of a sudden get a user, get five, get a thousand and grow. I really, really take interest in that. I find that really cool to think about. So yeah, for that reason, I've always been tech focused. I've always just out of curiosity, followed that space. I don't really follow ETFs or markets or the general indices. That part doesn't excite me at all because I don't have any transparency or insight into those. I'd basically be pretending like I know what I'm talking about and I hate that. I'd rather not know, admit I don't know, and just ask questions along the way. I think it's a more genuine way to think about stuff. And 
be more honest with yourself. So why do I want to talk about moving markets? If that's my theory, I guess what I'm wondering is I have a long-term strategy. I know that. But if you're going to, let's say, swing trade or arbitrage, if you want to time a sell down or a financial crash, or like we saw in the last six months, I guess what my question is, if it is a supply and demand issue, there must have been a lot of sellers when the markets were tanking. And what percentage were institutional investors? What percentage were retail or maybe family offices, which are private funds for rich people? Is there a way to easily tell out of the daily trade volume? Can I actually look and say, wow, institutionals are selling or it's panic retail investor selling? And is there any insight into that? Because as much as everyone wants to pretend they know the ins and outs of the markets, I don't think many really do. And some get very specialized, but what can you tell us, Cal, about the insight into who's actually doing the selling and who's actually doing the buying? The market has a lot of participants. So you have banks, financial institutions like hedge funds, pension funds, and you also have retail investors like you and I. And the majority of the intraday trading would happen for liquid equities and liquid stocks would actually be what I believe is high frequency trading. So algorithms for those large institutions that would be trading based on the spread and trying to scalp at one cent here and two cents there and make money very, very quickly and being able to scalp based on the spread and the movement of the price of the underlying. So those participants all have some sort of an effect on the movement of the price. Going back, what may cause the supply and demand shift, you have what you call fundamentals that are things on either a macro or a micro scale. On a macroeconomic scale, a large event like maybe the trade war that was ongoing for years, Brexit, the COVID-19 pandemic, those are all macro events. They can actually shift the price, whether you're looking at overall markets and indices, or you're looking at individual stocks. So that could actually still shift the price of the individual stock because it could affect it on a micro scale. And then they have the micro events, which are more company-related things. Like you said, earnings or big announcements or a tweet that could also have an effect on the movement of the price. Those generally can have a longer-term effect, so it can take a day or two or a week or two or a month or more for the price to move based on those fundamentals. And it could be even over one day. However, on an intraday level, I think there is a more technical effect. So there are a lot of people that are looking at certain technical levels. And the reason for that is these technicals explain a lot of the psychology behind the trading. So active traders would be buying and selling at certain points because they see certain levels of support and certain levels of resistance. Support level meaning that if the stock price drops down to a certain price point, and that price point holds, that means a lot of people believe that it's a decent level to buy that share, the shares of that company, and it could hold as a support. So it's not going to easily break down because there is going to be an influx of buyers coming in to buy at that price, believing that's a good price to buy at. So even if you have a high number of sellers, those buyers would come in and pick up those shares that are available for sale. And then that eventually can either move the price higher or if the selling pressure is a lot more beyond even that support level, 
that's what breaks down below that price. So if the supply of selling the shares are way more than the demand at that support level, then what you'll see is a significant drop in the price of the share on an intraday level. So maybe a $1 drop or 1% drop, let's be more precise with percentages, perhaps a 1%, half a percent instant drop or a red candlestick that would just drop. And that would show some sort of selling pressure coming in. I cannot tell you exactly if the sellers would be or buyers would be more retail or institutional or high frequency traders or market makers. But what it is usually, if you're a trader and you have access to what they call level two, you'd be able to see the lot size. And the lot size is telling you how many shares are available to buy and sell at any given price. So if you see, let's say at the current ask price, a large number of sellers, a very large volume, usually that would be a sign of an institutional seller that's offloading some shares. Or if it's a large number of buying, that means this could be a good level of support and a lot of buyers coming in with a large order to buy a large number of shares, even though they do usually break it down over certain prices, but that could be a sign of who's buying and who's selling. But who causes the flush down, or as some people call it, a melt up if it's a squeeze higher for the price, is really just purely supply and demand. Who's buying, who's selling? It's hard to tell at the time of it happening, but it almost doesn't really matter much based on your thesis of why you're taking that position. So it could be a lengthy discussion, but it's very fascinating to understand how both fundamentals and technicals can affect the overall direction of the stock up or down. You said a very good point there, which is look at the time scale of something. So take your thesis and if you're a day trader, you might trade in seconds or minutes and you might have short entries and exits and you're very focused on the nuance of micro price movements almost like looking at something on the atomic scale. So how do the atoms and particles of something work? And conversely, if you're going to go long, the movement in the markets, or specifically if you have a individual company strategy where you're picking out winners and holding them, you may say, well, what's my five-year outlook on this company? What's the trading range? So did I 2X in five years? Did I 5X? And that's a totally different conversation. So having a thesis is probably the takeaway here to give you some bearings on how you're going to try doing this, on which companies to look at, which tickers, which strategies are you going to deploy here. And what I would say is, if you're going to pick and learn a strategy, don't just abandon it. Try and learn it. If it scares you or you might think you're going to get into a wipeout event, just use less money. Don't take a huge percentage of capital and educate yourself. So that's probably how I do it. And it's totally fine to maybe try even a new strategy on top of another. And you essentially diversify what your holdings will be. And if you want to go 5% of your money in options and 5% in crypto, maybe another 60-80% long equities or specific companies, whatever that mix looks like to you, and 10% in your own project, see where it goes. But building and learning and growing will compound over time. That's definitely something I'm confident in, no matter what 
you'll be more engaged. You'll actually be thankful you had tried something and that learning doesn't go away. So Cal, what's your opinion on how long would you try a strategy or how many different strategies? What's your personal view on too many things at once or being hyper-focused on one thing? Do you have any opinions on that? If you're going to try and gauge how the markets are moving and how to start? Yeah, I think personally, it's better to focus on one thing at first, at the very least. And the reason for that is you don't get scattered. You pay more attention. You're more focused. Some people think multitasking is, and they might be right. It could be an asset. I think being focused on one thing could be more productive. And then once you're done with that one thing, you can move on to the next. But when it comes to trading investing, I think that does help because it is much easier. Let's say you're an active trader. So if you trade multiple positions at a time, all being positions that you plan on closing right away, one position could go your way or against you and could take your attention away from the other positions that might need your attention at that particular point in time. And it'd be a lot more difficult to manage those positions. So if you're focused on one thing, that's much better in my opinion. Having said that, you can have a position in, like you said, in equities for short term, and you could have a position in your long-term slash retirement account some equities, some bonds, maybe some commodities, crypto, just a bit of everything that just works in the background. And that's the beauty of long-term investing, or if you like to call it a swing trading where you hold for longer periods of time, it kind of cleans up all the noise that you see intraday, the movement up and down between one day to the other that, oh, I'm making money now. Oh, I'm losing money now. And just gives you an overall perspective of where the direction might be headed to. So that could be a lot less stressful. Let's say if you're putting some money that you feel you can't afford to lose, which I don't recommend in the first place, but it just gives you a steadier outlook of what's going to happen. So it depends. I do believe that, yes, diversification could be good after you've grown. Once you get to a point where, let's say you've grown $10,000 to $10 million, that's fantastic. And then what happens is the scalability is you won't be able to grow that 10 million as easily as you did the 10,000 using the exact same strategy because it's not going to be easy with liquidity. The position size is too big to get in and out of it. So what you do is you're going to diversify. And that's where I think it's better to actually spread out. But start off small, relatively speaking, whether it was 10,000 or 100,000, that's all small positions in the market generally, I think it's better to focus maybe between one to two things, ideally, and then slowly grow into something else. Yeah. So you said a good point, which is scalability. I do want to make a complimentary point. So if you're going to go long, angels might do 25, 50K checks, $1,000 checks, people raising seed rounds in a company. These are, of course, still private might raise half a million dollars or so, maybe a million. And the values could be probably three, five, ten million dollars as a company as a whole. And as you get into your series A, B, and C rounds, which is just on the cusp of going public, you will see valuations in the fifty, hundred million dollars and you might raise 
five, $10 million. So I think every stage of a company's life, depending on what the money is going to be used for, is in fact a different goalpost in terms of how your money will go to play, what percentage of the company you'll own. And I would recommend to start thinking about it that way too, which is, hey, if you're going to go buy $1,000 of Apple, what actual percentage of the company do you own? Because if you're eventually going to grow to 2 million, 10 million, 20 million dollars, to do the math, is your money going to return a 5x on your 2 million dollars you invested, which is a percentage of your overall 20? So equity ownership is an important concept. I would recommend to think about that. When you think of going long in the public markets, there are some famous investors who would drop 2 billion dollars in Tesla. I don't know the mechanics of how it's probably dispersed amongst different brokerages and stock exchanges at different price points and different time horizons. So it might buy in $2 billion over a month or two, is my guess, not in an instant order. But long term, I think, yeah, you're safe in the millions of dollars. And if you're investing millions, you probably have millions. I don't think it's going to be an issue for you to necessarily deploy that capital. It's just more of the strategy behind which company is going to do well in the next five, seven, 10 years. And I mean, at that level, I would absolutely diversify into picking new winners who you have a high level of educated confidence in that if things go right, you can see a big return or that company can make a meaningful impact in terms of how many people use it, how is it going to change the world, all those factors. So all cool things to think about. I think that covers it. So start to think about your strategy of what your investment thesis is going to be. Start to think about what percentage of your money are you going to use? Are you going to use $100 and try day trading? Are you going to buy a share of Apple once a month? Are you going to open a crypto wallet, buy a little bit of crypto and hold on to that? Depends on where you put your time and how much you want to follow along in terms of the day-to-day or the long-term. So I think we'll wrap it up there. Thanks everyone for tuning in today. That was Methodical Millions, episode 30. If you'd like to follow future episodes, you can find us at methodicalmillions.com or info at methodicalmillions.com for episode feedback. Thanks, everyone.